Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. So, um, James, after that uh, very um, insightful uh, background into who you are in a bit, let, let, let's start right from the top, um, which is really how did you become interested um, in researching addiction and substance use disorders? The sure. Doors. Sure. So it's a um, fairly long story, but I'll try and be concise. Um, originally, uh, I became interested particularly in kind of drinking behaviours as a result of my own experience as an undergraduate. So I was a teenager in the 1990s, which has kind of been described as peak booze, the period yeah. leading up to 2004, where consumption continued on that steep rise. And yeah, so by 14, I was doing alka pops in parks and um, binge drinking, if you like. Um, but by the time I got to university, I developed a fairly significant degree of tolerance and getting drunk, which was something you know I'd regularly pursued, became increasingly difficult as a result of that tolerance to the point that I actually developed physical health problems. So mainly alcohol-related gastritis, where my heavy drinking kind of dissolved the, the stomach lining. Um, resulting in some yeah, un unpleasant side effects. Um, but of course, there was yeah, a lot of behavioral consequences, which at the time, you know, I didn't really question or many of them I was kind of proud of or other people yeah. uh, glamorized or saw me as in a positive light, which yeah, certainly things that I view less positively now. Um, but yeah, but, but really it was the, the kind of onset of the physical health problems that really were a wake-up call. Um, so my second year of university as an undergraduate, I tried to moderate my drinking and failed, not surprisingly, given my kind of peer social network and kind of yes, other factors involved in terms of like mental health and so on. Um, and then, yeah, after... Factors that are obvious to you now, but yes, clearly were not at the time. No, absolutely. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, I, I often refer back to sort of the thought processes that I had then and how... how much discrepancy there is between yeah um yeah some of the beliefs and expectations i had around drinking and other things yeah which we may come back to um so yeah i went through this period of trying to moderate my drinking and failing and then um i stopped drinking and then that was a real eye-opener because a lot of people were very uncomfortable with that and found it challenging again particularly because my social network was geared around heavy drinking um and then I ended up not drinking for eight years. So um, when I graduated, I, I kind of got a job in um, kind of strategic related role relating to alcohol harm reduction and then moved more into the health and public health and addiction treatment side of things before later coming to academia. Um, and then, but yeah, around 28 years old, I sort of began an experiment of trying to drink again in a kind of controlled or moderate way, which of course for some people was quite um, quite baffling really. And I had one person say, you're going to deliberately relapse. Um, and but it was quite clear for me that I was going to, you know, if it didn't work, if it, you know, I had some quite clear rules and parameters, which is a really important um, component of success in moderate drinking, that if I didn't achieve those or stick to those, then I'd return to abstinence having learn how to do that and be happy with it um so yeah now i kind of drink moderately i enjoy a glass of wine with a meal or a drink on a, a drink or two on a social occasion but i'm quite strict about alcohol free days in the week and how much i do drink when i do um so yeah that's that's a bit of a summary yeah can you quantify that for me at the moment um how much yeah um so the start i was very strict about it and it would you know, be literally within the recommended guidelines, which at the time were daily guidelines. So uh, three to four units a day, which is like one or one and a half of most drinks. Um, and now we're back to kind of weekly guidelines, which is 14 units. So yeah, on an average week, I'd, I'd yeah, probably be around that mark when, um, yeah, so if I have a, you know, glass of wine or two with a meal once or twice a week and then one social occasion, um, yeah, certainly, you know, there used to be an, an upper threshold for men of 21 units a week. That's certainly something I'd, I'd never go above. Um, 
but yeah, obviously it's a risk curve and a lot of my work's about promoting this idea that it's not a steep cutoff. Like if you go above the guidelines, suddenly everything's going to go wrong. Worse. Yeah, it's it's a very mm. strong dose effect. And the more you go above that, the greater the, the level of risks. But yeah, alcohol-free day effect, uh, alcohol-free days and not being intoxicated uh, or developing tolerance are clear, clear boundaries for me. Yeah. Okay, so for the, the, the first thing to really nail home here, one is that you had a very pretty severe relationship with alcohol. Mm. Could you quantify what that was like in in volume? What would you say you were doing units worse in your in your, in your worst times? But not just like one peak, like yes. regularly. What were you in your? What so do you I think, think it, you were? I think it did build up. But I, I suppose the really interesting thing was that um, I knew that going to university was uh, a, an opportunity for lots of heavy drinking, particularly in my first year, where I don't think doing my undergrad in history there was any actual assessment that would count towards my final uh kind of degree so the first year yeah it, it kind of really was i was probably binge drinking heavily easily 30 units on an occasion um you know two three four five times a week um with quite severe hangovers as a result of most of those sessions um but yeah i remember having to drink um or having to do lots of shots before i'd go out to have a chance of being intoxicated so i'd probably do six shots and then go out and maybe drink five or six beers and then some double shots and so on um so yeah the tolerance really went up and i'd have to drink more and more and even by the end i still felt like i couldn't really get very drunk drinking those amounts yeah okay well I think the first part of it is here. This podcast, it, it is about you, but it's not about you. It's about the wonderful work that you are doing and um, the research that you are discovering. Um, so we're not going to get into the, the, the tit for tat for whether you were an addict or an alcoholic or severe alcohol use disorder or all of those terms, right? That's, it's not about painting the specific picture to say that you were the success story here to hold up the flag. Um, but... At 100 plus units a week, that's a huge volume of, um, of of alcohol. And as you know now, it's very severe, you know, damage and things like that. But that's also a lot of people in their in their 20s and 30s. I was there. Um, I mean, I could, you know, IP week, you'd be doing that in three days, four days, right? And <laughs> we could just be drinking all day, all night, a couple of hours sleep in the disabled toilets. Um, so... One one of the main points I wanted to bring you onto this podcast, and 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 you know, obviously to highlight the wonderful work that you are doing, um, but is really the the fascinating stuff around controlled drinking and and the various reviews that you've done there. And what we have seen a lot of um, in our audience is that since we provide programs for people at all levels, right, almost all of our programs recommend a period of abstinence, um, and we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, but is this feeling from um, those who maybe have tried to moderate or control their drinking in the past who tell everyone that moderation is impossible? And those voices are very loud. We're going to come on to that. I'm sorry I digress. That's the ADHD-ness in me, and we will shoot all over the place because I know that you want to help me um, communicate that better and tackle that. We'll come on to that. But what you said uh, back in the beginning was um, beliefs versus expectations, and this was the beliefs that you had about the idea of trying to moderate your drinking on with your own um, uh, with your own thinking hat on versus the expectation of reality. Give me a bit more insight into that from your perspective, both the beliefs that you had and and where, why they come about, where they're from, and then um, the truth, the expectations, etc. Yeah, so I mean, in psychology, which is you know kind of my main domain of research is a very strong literature that you know a lot of our behaviors are driven by expectations or expectancies as we'd call it and expectancies are just yeah essentially just beliefs that we have about certain behaviors you know if i drink i will feel this way um but obviously you know so many of these expectancies or beliefs are culturally conditioned um you know that's this is why the alcohol industry invests huge amounts in alcohol advertising that maybe portrays alcohol in certain ways. Well, I probably need to be careful about what I say because they do have 
standards around advertising, which I would also point out are self-regulated, self-set. But essentially... You Don't know, be careful what you <laughs> have to say on this podcast. This is well, about straight talk on here. Yeah. Well, I never really quite understand the if rules If they don't around... like it, they can come and get me. <laughs> yeah. I never quite understand what the rules are around uh, around the legalities of it. But I, yeah, I think we can get away with saying, um, you know, alcohol is, you know, remains culturally normalized and very glamorized in a lot of ways. And, yep. you know, that's not necessarily enough. And I think we're you know, we're turning back the tide on that. We're fighting against that in some way. We are seeing gains in terms of consumption reducing and more people, particularly younger people, drinking less because in part they recognise that, you know, the downsides of, you know, a significant costs. Um, there's significant costs to kind of drinking, you know, at any level essentially. But yeah, like, so, yeah, I certainly just grew up where, you know, alcohol was a way of, uh, socializing of letting go of having fun of um and I, and I guess you know there is always the individual aspect to it so certainly you know as a child I was actually quite shy and you know within a shell and as a teenager I really sort of went the other way and I think alcohol was a big part of maybe initially helping me to do that but it's certainly true that a lot of the expectancies we have around drinking are um just that they're just belief effects that are partly rooted in a degree of the sort of pharmacological reaction of alcohol but become more um kind of uh yeah just a product of our beliefs so lots of people if you give them alcohol free drinks and don't tell them they'll report being just as drunk as someone that received an actual alcoholic drink um so i think yeah just all, my whole belief system became embedded in this idea that drinking was a part of who i was it was a part of my identity it was a part of how I enjoyed myself and what I did to enjoy myself. And so at that point, you know, in my teens, I became very quickly embedded in this belief that, you know, I just couldn't be me or I couldn't be happy or I couldn't have fun without drinking. And so, um, yeah, that, that process of, of kind of getting to a place where I could um, control my drinking or not value, overvalue drinking was was a, a lot in larger process of realigning or um, kind of, yeah, scrapping those expectancies and starting again and sort of building alcohol in, into my life in a way that it wasn't, as Adrian Charles often says, put on such a huge pedestal. Yeah. Whereas now I just see a drink as a way to complement a meal or a social occasion, but I'm definitely not seeing it as something that um, is a part of who I am or is as a necessity for having a good time or letting myself go or dealing with um, internalised emotional issues or et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, now I would drink to complement an occasion or a meal, but I'm definitely not seeing it as part of my identity, part of a necessity to have fun or as a way of dealing with issues that maybe I, I haven't addressed. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really just something that I could really take or leave rather than something that really felt so fundamental to who I was and how I'd kind of express myself or have a good time as I saw it. Okay. Um, and so have you done periods of absence? Well, I did eight years in my 20s. And then um, since then, yeah, I've had uh, uh, probably a couple of weeks where I haven't drunk for, for different reasons. But um, yeah, uh, I often sort of think about dry January, but then a big part of what I kind of promote is you know, this idea that uh, it's about what you do most of the time and moderation throughout the year, if you're a moderate drinker, is, um, you know, important. You know, one of the criticisms about sort of uh, abstinence or month month off approaches is, well, if, you know, there's definitely benefits of doing that uh, in terms of um, reduced kind of growth in cancer risk cells or liver functioning. But what if you return to your previous patterns of consumption? Does that make any difference? We don't really know. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so at the moment, you sort of drink around the the normal drinking. Um, uh, what, sorry, I say normal, but what fourteen units is? That's yeah, where recommended you, you, guidelines. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, but I'm just challenging mm. on this because um, uh, Professor Dame Sally Davis. Yes. Um, uh, or Dame Sally Davis, not Professor Dame Sally Davis. When she came out and changed that limit from 21 to 14, she said there's no safe limit. 
and you'll know from your research now, like um, even a small amount of alcohol is significantly impacting your health, your mental health, um, things like that. So, yeah, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly say that from a physical health point of view, there are no benefits from drinking, only negatives. Um, and yeah, the lowering of the recommended guideline, I think, was mainly on the basis of even low le levels of alcohol consumption, increasing risk of cancer. I mean, those risks are pretty low. If you look at it from a sort of statistical perspective, drinking within the guidelines is very unlikely to, you know, result in an alcohol-related cancer, but will in some small way be contributing to an increased risk. Um, and obviously that's in combination with other lifestyle factors. So if you drink alcohol and smoke, there's a, a really nasty synergistic effect where the, the odds are much more than just doing either of those alone. Similarly with kind of um, having other poor uh, health outcomes or, or issues like um, being overweight, etc. But I, I guess the, the kind of complicating factor is around the social benefits of alcohol and also... You, you know what I will say is a very complicated but I think important aspect of my drinking to acknowledge is that it's you know I don't drink wine just because I like the taste of it there is actually I do notice a mild relaxing effect and I still have a I you know I I, I far less struggle with anxiety having done I think lots of psychotherapy and you know having a fairly healthy good lifestyle routine that involves exercise and bits of yoga and other stuff but I still tend to have a bit of a background anxiety buzzing away that's very manageable and nothing like what it used to be which was probably part of the driver of the attraction to drinking yep. Yep. in the first place but having a glass of wine will kind of uh kind of dampen that out a bit so there obviously is that sort of positive reinforcement effect that still attracts me to drinking alcohol in moderation but in the moment you know, that feels pleasant and, you know, it's a very complex debate, but you could argue that that drinking in the moment within the guidelines, if it brings you some physiological benefits like increased relaxation, you can argue that's not a negative thing, that that's a positive thing. But of course, it's a very complex trade-off between, you know, not wanting to do that more often and then the health consequences associated with that. And so, individualized yeah. and very, yeah. very individualized because you touched on something very important about, and that was the work we'll call the work, which was yeah. you went to psychotherapy, you do the habits and the routines. So there's going to be a, a balance in between there, but we'll come on to that a bit later about what it is. So let's talk about this very specifically because it, what you've painted a picture in my mind, just from this conversation so far, is that the idea of controlled drinking is to go from alcohol use disorder, which is a big, long, long, long stretch of yeah, of a word, absolutely. which used to which captures a lot of other words used out there. But alcohol use disorder kind of um, catches catches them, and then um, to bring them back down to below or at the guidelines. Would is that how you would describe controlled drinking, or what would you describe as controlled drinking? Yeah, I don't love the term controlled drinking, but historically it's the one that, you know, began beginning in the sort of 60s and 70s where the debates really started kicking off. But yeah, technically within most of the research literature, controlled drinking is defined as drinking within the recommended guidelines, although they've obviously shifted over the years. Um, but there is a, um, you know, a, a kind of a push amongst some and some good evidence to support you know, drinking reduction goals as being um, important as well. So um, someone called Katie Vickovitz, who's uh, an amazing alcohol researcher based in America, has done a lot of work where she kind of shows that even a drinking risk reduction, um, even from like a, a severe level of alcohol dependence to a moderate or less severe alcohol level of dependence will result in really significant health improvements and quality of life functioning and so on. So I, I guess like, yeah, controlled drinking is defined as drinking within the guidelines, which is a very low risk level of alcohol. But but we don't want to throw out the fact that, you know, harm reduction of principles are still really important for other people who may not want abstinence or may not feel like they can achieve abstinence, uh, that there's still lots of benefits from harm reduction or other types of reduction approaches. But the term controlled drinking 
for me implies that you're still needing to control it and therefore you're still fundamentally like addicted and it's a problem so for me i prefer terms like mindful drinking or just yeah or just low-risk drinking or yeah, just drinking without a problem for instance but yeah, yeah. it's very complex. because mindful i mean if you if you if you uh mindful is also i agree but then mindful drinking is like if you mindfully eat chocolate it doesn't mean that you're eating a low amount of it it just means that you're going mm, mm. this is so tasty and yes. i'm getting flagrances of flagrances fragrances yeah. <laughs> that was flavor that fragrances yeah, all in one word I got it. flagrances <laughs> of, yeah. of of you know south america or you know, blah 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 so um it is it is fraught this whole place this whole thing that we do you and i of of helping people and researching and trying to get the best science out there and stuff like that is fraught with words to avoid it's like potholes in the road you're like oh avoid that one <laughs> and avoid that one. okay so thank you for that um understanding of controlled drinking so my next question from that Good. is what studies have you seen you know you've done a lot of of research um into this what studies have you seen around controlled drinking and their success rates and what was working in them yeah so in uh a couple of years ago, or 2022, uh, there was a, a systematic review and um, meta-analysis of all the kind of controlled drinking studies. Um, so this I've is, read that. Thank you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's, it's like it's not a huge evidence base. There's not huge amounts of work that's gone into controlled drinking, but we do have a pretty consistent. Still thousands. Yes, thousands of participants across those studies, and we do have a pretty consistent, clear picture over what's now decades of research that for some people absolutely it can work the sort of parameters or kind of conditions around it are important people with very severe alcohol use disorder tend not to be suitable for it particularly because they tend to have severe liver damage and therefore any amount of alcohol is going to be really high risk of of kind of liver failure um and also severe it's, it's unclear the extent to which um alcohol dependency is really associated with likelihood of succeeding in controlled drinking it was historically thought that absolutely the more severe your alcohol use disorder the less suitable uh, controlled drinking outcome might be and yep. that makes a lot of sense but the evidence isn't quite so clear on that it does seem that there's even a proportion of people a minority probably less than 20 percent of people with more severe alcohol use disorder who do go on to achieve a controlled drinking goal but in the general sense, they're more suitable for people that probably aren't going to need a detox and long period of structured treatment or suitable for a rehab. It's that kind of more general proportion of, you know, functional alcohol dependent drinkers who are going to be more like, you know, the Adrian Childs type person, um, someone like me, rather than someone that has had, you know, a very severe long period of heavy alcohol dependence. Um and yeah even even then there's still lots of other contingent aspects that it, it, you know that predicted success and and a lot of people also start off with a controlled drinking goal and end up with an abstinence goal and some vice versa completely completely yeah. absolutely one of the things that we've certainly found throughout our programs um, you know, when we first launched this, it was like, hey, this is just for lifestyle drinkers and social drinkers and binge drinkers. We're really not for this. And if you've got alcohol use disorder, don't sign up. And that's on our terms and conditions. It was, you know, please read these before you sign up. Well, over the years, we've had thousands, I mean, a huge proportion. I don't want to publicly admit what the proportion is, but it's the vast proportion of people who are considered alcohol use disorder have come in and had huge success with our program. And I think there's an element of the sort of the treatment, the, 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 the bucket you are putting somebody into. At the end of the day, looking at neuroscience, looking at um, yeah, science, psychology, all of those things, the brain is a wonderful thing and we can change it. We can rebuild neural pathways. We can change our beliefs and our habits and our routines and we can change these things and we can recreate who we are about ourselves. We can unlock trauma. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling... 
We are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We can move past all this stuff. And so that means that we don't necessarily need to be something that we were before. We can change. Um, and on that basis, I think if you can give people the right tools and you give the people the right structure and the right guidance, um, they can um, often achieve these things. So what, 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 I'd, what I'd love to be a part of, you know, um, um, and you and I, I think this is hopefully the beginning of a fruitful relationship together, um, because what I'd love to be a part of is trying to demonstrate this with evidence and proof of to saying to people, you know, really that, that we can hone in and that we can help people self-identify, right? So in a very powerful scorecard, which is something we're working now, I can take a simple survey that is going to look at the various factors in my life and score those. Okay, we have the audit score right now, but it's it's way more multidimensionary than the audit score, right? It's, it's way beyond that. I've talked for a while now. Any thoughts on what I've just said? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so Nick Heather, who is one of my PhD supervisors and one of the leading researchers into controlled drinking. How I found you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, he actually developed something called the impaired control scale, and that was found to be quite useful as a predictor of a likelihood of a controlled drinking outcome. Um so um, I don't think it's widely utilized in practice, but I think sometimes it is kind of used where, you know, um, someone who is kind of weighing up what, what kind of goal they might want to aim for might be offered uh, uh, an opportunity to go through that. I suppose, you know, just taking a really kind of broad step back, um, you know, for someone who's not engaging in treatment and trying to figure out on on this on their own, I think the crux of it is really about you know, being honest about what role is alcohol playing in your life, how much of that is driving the kind of problem as you see it. And and if you're going to kind of use alcohol in the future, um, you're almost certainly going to probably want or need or benefit from a period of abstinence to kind of reset in some sense. I don't mean literally necessarily in a sort of neuroscientific way. Uh, uh, way, but there is definitely evidence, as you say, the brain's very plastic and trimming back those pathways, those overlearned behaviours that make drinking kind of automatic is going to be um, definitely a big part of success in changing any behaviour, including alcohol use. But for me, I think that the most important way to really look at it from kind of an individual perspective is what role do I want or expect alcohol to be playing in my life? And is that one that's going to be compatible with kind of managing it in the way that I'd like to? So mm -hmm. for me, you know, the, the peak of my problematic drinking was when, you know, I was a teenager, I had a lot of sort of fire in my belly, a lot of sort of issues that I didn't know, emotions I didn't really know how to control. And, you know, um, and alcohol was really a way of kind of, I think, allowing me to feel like I was dealing with that stuff when I wasn't really. So, yeah, doing the work, I think, was probably, and a long period of abstinence were the two things that really allowed me to put space between everything that had developed into an alcohol problem and how I can now use it in a way that means that I'm not using it in a way that's 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 kind of um, as a coping response or a you know, de-stressor or a substitute for an identity or any of those kind of things. Um, yeah. And and then the other thing, is, of course, as well, is the way in which, um, you know, you as you mentioned, the term alcohol use disorder, well, um, you know, the, the dominance of the alcoholism model is so strong still. And, um, you know, I'm not a critique of AA in the sense that it works for a lot of people who it works for. But it does present alcohol problems in a way that is incompatible with the idea of controlled drinking if you self-identify as an alcoholic. The the, the literal um, condition of that, according to sort of Alcoholics Anonymous, is that you admit powerlessness over alcohol and that you can't control your alcohol use. But but I've argued that 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 uh, way of thinking about alcohol problems has is saturated, is spilled over so much that for many people who can achieve controlled drinking, um, they're, they're trying to make sense of changing their drinking in that kind of 
alcoholic or not binary um and yeah so it's kind of yeah alcoholics anonymous yes yeah, in your mouth yes it's exactly. unhelpful because i see that i see people say oh i've slipped up again i must remain alcohol free forever because this is the yes. only way and i'm gonna have to stay on the alcohol free path yeah. no no you just haven't figured it out yet you haven't been shown what you need to change you don't know what the things are that are driving it but you can potentially yeah and i i just really want to caveat it now by of course saying that abstinence you know we, we i think we both agree that for many people abstinence is the better choice and many and for those people abs you can see why alcoholics anonymous appeals and does work and of course then there's a whole other set of arguments about some of the downsides or risks or consequences of, of alcoholics anonymous but but generally a peer support network all supporting other people with the same goal is a valuable thing yeah um uh but yeah the idea of this this sort of uh, uh, the alcoholic model was developed in the came about more prominently in the 1930s in america um and you know remains today as a an unscientific binary categorization of alcoholics and everybody else and as we've already discussed it's so much more nuanced than that exactly um, one core factor here, just to put into perspective, um, um, our programs, once again, I mean, one year, no beer. Okay. That's abstinence. 28 day alcohol free challenge, 90 day alcohol free challenge. Even our controlled drinking programs, um, the um, um, complete control, that's a minimum of 30 days alcohol free. Now, you're right. Abstinence does not equal control. But the best way to get control is to have a period of abstinence and to do the work. Those two together. You said it perfectly. You said eight years, that's a long time. Well done. But for you as well, it was a needle in a haystack. You didn't know what to look for. You were just trying to figure it out yourself, right? Meanwhile, studying psychology and learning these other things. Um, so, you know, th that's, that's exactly it. And I think, um, you know, always, always, I think we must take the best possible care of people. For me... What I see is that people are afraid of abstinence, right? They're afraid of admitting they need abstinence. They're afraid they, they, that they've, that they, that they, they're ashamed. They're, they're stigmatized. It's like, I don't want to go over there. I don't want to do that. I think I can try and control it myself. And they get stuck in a little loop of trying to control and often make things worse, right? And, 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 but what, so what we say to people is, hey, we can help you control your drinking, right? We're going to help you control your drinking. Come over here. Great. I come over the line. Right. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to get you to stop drinking for 30 days. Right. Um, I had Dopamine Nation, wonderful lady. I just had her on the pod podcast. Um, and she's showing what's happening from a neuroscience perspective um, that, you know, in that in a 28 day period, the reward pathway is reset from a dopamine perspective. Right. So that 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 element allows your reward pathway to reset, which I think is really, really powerful for people. So I just want to touch in on again about your research, okay? The research you were showing about people not getting help because of, of, of the abstinence only programs, you kind of touched on to that. Um, and why, yeah, without putting words in your mouth, why you think we can help more people if we are sort of focusing on the control um, element? Yeah, so the control element's one part of it. But I, I would say just, again, more broadly, it's about reconceptualizing society's understanding of alcohol use and problems and particularly what i have researched you know through experimental studies where we kind of tweak uh, people's beliefs is to kind of really prime them with this idea of alcohol problems existing on a continuum um and that really is a direct counter to what i was saying about that problem of the dichotomy, the binary between alcoholics and everybody else. Yeah. And we're, we're cognitively biased towards reductionist. You know, we want to, is that we're very strongly motivated just instinctively to try and put things into boxes and make sense of the world by making it more digestible um, and, you know, less nuanced is easier to just understand. And we need to do that to go about our daily lives if we saw everything in its entire complexity we wouldn't get anywhere or get anything done but for certain things or thought processes that can be problematic and certainly in terms of yeah as you're saying people thinking about oh if i've got an alcohol problem does that mean i need to give up alcohol altogether and attend aa for the rest of my life well understandably that's a very scary prospect for a lot of people particularly people that do 
um, maybe have uh, social networks or are very aware of the benefits um, that they have. So yeah, there's good research, uh, lots of research showing that that there's a large group of people who who drink at heavy levels, have levels of alcohol use disorder, maybe not at the more severe end of the spectrum. But when you talk to them, they're they're very protective about the benefits and the value that they get from drinking um, and very keen to disassociate themselves from the stigma of being an alcoholic. That's, that's understandably very threatening to, you know, be aware of if you, if you have that label attached to you, you know that other people will see you differently. They will discriminate against you and they will see you as, um, in some way, biologically deficient or dangerous or unreliable. Um, so yeah, the stigma attached to being seen as having an alcohol problem is is really surprisingly high. You know, you can compare it to illegal drugs and severe mental health conditions, which have very high stigma. Alcohol problems, when once you're in that category, the stigma is just as high. But but it's but it's in part driven by lots of people who drink heavily who are actually going well, that's not us. Look at the, in inverted commas, alcoholics. Those are the problem drinkers. So society is, unin or lots of heavy drinkers are unintentionally increasing stigma by creating that, that false separation into two groups. I mean, in sort of sociology, we call it othering, and it happens in lots of different ways. So people will, with, you know, mental health problems say, oh no, it's schizophrenics who are the problem and create that. That, that extreme stereotype of an other to protect and distance themselves from. So yeah, most of my research is about how can we increase understanding of alcohol use and problems as a broad spectrum um, to, to, to challenge that othering, to challenge that false dichotomy that will help hopefully reduce the stigma and help people recognize that, yeah, there, there are different pathways and different routes to recovery or controlling your drinking or whatever that it's not this black and white thing of if you have a problem, you need to give up and go to AA and there's no other way to it. Um, one, yeah, yeah, no beer and all the other kind of options and narratives that are emerging around positive sobriety and young people, I think, are sort of organic response to, um, you know, that, that kind of oversimplification that's kind of spilled over and that we're kind of trying to lie back on a bit. One thing you mentioned quite some some back ago is you said that uh, you used the word relapse right now. So talking about the word relapse, um, and that is a measure in the um, alcohol use disorder success rates for um, abstinence-based programs, relapse. What's the measure for controlled drinking? Well, yeah, that's, that's a Does relapse question. exist? Is it, is it that here you were before, you were yeah. drinking 100 plus units, um, and then we'll take a bunch of people through a program, and then those of you who are back at the 100, you've effectively, the program hasn't worked. Is that how they're measuring it or how are they measuring it? Well, it depends in different studies. I think in most most outcomes would look at, um, you know, what your number of uh, units per week is, what your audit score is, how many heavy drinking days you've had, and then sort of average those out to establish a level of, you know, you might, you, you know, most programs you'll see, significant reductions in all of those in both people aiming for abstinence and controlled drinking so you know the, the Hensler systematic review showed that this conclusion was basically whether people are aiming for abstinence or whether they're aiming for controlled drinking the outcomes are basically the same like both groups improve in the sense that not everyone who's aiming for abstinence achieves abstinence they have lapses uh, uh, as do people who are aiming for con controlled drinking there's no significant difference in terms of um in terms of the improvements or outcomes between those two groups but yeah the term relapse you know is is controversial because um you know it is potentially stigmatizing you know if you say someone has had a relapse it sounds quite judgmental it infers that they've kind of lost control and you know they're all the way back to the start so yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people say lapse is a very normal part of recovery for almost any beha addictive behavior or health behavior. Yeah. Almost no one just does it on the first go. It's a, yeah. it's a process. And obviously that's a big part of addiction is that because it's so complicated and it's so, um, such an embedded and, and problematic or difficult 
behavior to change that that really it isn't a process and you know it's commonly cited that it's not until kind of five years of being sort of in recovery in inverted commas that the chance of returning to pre-recovery levels of drinking are yeah it's, it's reduced to kind of a really kind of 15 percent or less risk so yeah so the, the risk of um, or the, the chance of inverted commas relapse remains high for several so, years after recovery begins but gradually right. will, will reduce over time but it's a long a long process yeah yeah um i had a, a a participant once who came onto the program and he helped me solidify this analogy so you know we have on the wagon off the wagon um but let's bring that up to today so controlled drinking is like rally driving okay now it's like a rear wheel car rally drive which is that you are almost always on the edge of control okay um you're on the edge of control but to control drinking sometimes bring it back on sometimes bring it back off but it's the test of learning as you go through that journey um on that point um and and please don't be offended but from what i'm trying to do or what one we are trying to do in our controlled drinking programs um, and where i think the 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 sweet spot and what is actually healthy and okay um to me your level of drinking is too much Here. right and um, that i believe that where it should be for people to be in controlled drinking is actually most of the time they don't drink because even just two drinks it's going to disturb your sleep it's going to to impact your work it's going you know it, it does we're actually seeing more and more from the science that that just a slow amount of alcohol does impact us cool. and what we say in our program is really that peak performance and drinking alcohol regularly cannot coexist sure so if you want this then we can't be here but i agree with you also in the same sentence about the benefits and the perceived benefits and taking edge off and things like that and as society i think we need to do more to have something more prevalent that's less harmful hey. that people can help take the edge off maybe that's cbd infused beer Sure. Another story. Um, sorry, I've gone on um, a, a little bit of a warpath okay. there, but can I sorry. come back on it? Oh. I mean, like, yep. you you know, the idea of something being too much or whatever, and the idea it's of addiction subjective. obviously <laughs> is is subjective. And but I would certainly accept that. You know, if I have two glasses of wine with a meal, um, which I will sometimes do, that yeah, that I I know that if I if I if I you know if I haven't had a few hours before I go to bed. Uh, after having, you know, the the last, the last glass or finished the the glass of wine, um, that it will definitely negatively affect my sleep. But yeah, that there's even evidence that you know small amounts of alcohol will negatively affect cognitive performance, memory functioning, reaction times, etc. The next day. So yeah, I don't deny that the level of drinking that I have has some negative consequences. But what I would say, and you can apply this to the context of any individual's person, any individual in the context of their a whole range of different behaviours, whether it's addiction or health behaviour, diet or exercise, is that you know, um, you know, you you kind of make value-based decisions on all of these things, and obviously, the more informed, the better that is. But for me, yeah, it's it's not too much because I'm weighing up. I think for a fairly informed position, all those benefits and consequences. And yeah, sometimes I think, oh, actually, it did disturb my sleep a bit, and I wish I'd had either nothing or, or one at all. But what I would really agree on is that absolutely less is more, particularly if you're looking at those physiological and general functional benefits. If you're really you know, looking to maximise your cognitive and physical performance and all those kind of things. Yeah. Um, then absolutely less is more and none is better than less. But it to balance it in the context of, you know, I love cooking. I'm, I'm a big food eater, is a sort of cliched term. And therefore wine and food can be an amazing thing. So if it, you know, it's affecting my cognitive performance by 5 or 10% the next day, that's a trade-off I'm kind of happy to take. But yeah, it's not clear cut. It's very complex. So um, thank you for that clarity there. And I guess what I, in part, what I wanted to say was for you, right? Rather than the judgment of, because I'm not here to judge at all, oh, right? Okay. And like you said, most importantly, subjective, <laughs> okay? So so if you could get somebody from a very, very high or, or high level of drinking, alcohol use disorder, 
down to being able to control their drinking within the lower risky limits, that's a huge success. And that's amazing. You know, that is what we should be aiming to do and, and, and strive for. My, 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 the part of me is like that because we see this trade-off in this part, that really the best place for somebody is not really drinking that often. And, but that being said, you know, I drink, right? I reckon I've probably had, I was thinking about that while you were, you were talking, probably the 14 units this year, um, maybe, maybe a bit more, maybe 20 units. <laughs> so really, really not much. I just tend not to drink. Um, but if I think about all of our participants who've been through the complete control program, there'll be very varying levels. But again, it comes back to this self-reported part where they're saying, no, no, I'm drinking in control, but they might be having a binge fest once a month but it's down from doing it once a week. That's a huge success. Well done. Um, so, okay. Um, I said we weren't going to make this all about, all about you. and it's, <laughs> it's, it, it, uh, it's been quite a lot talking about your personal relationship with alcohol, but it is fascinating. Um, and, um, you know, I think the, the big thing in here is about you doing it with the, the, the most amount of research and evidence and knowledge that you have having specialized in this field. So, amazing. We have sort of touched on the work, okay? Um, and I want to talk about that because I have some pretty strong ideas about what the work is. Um, and I know we kind of pinged backwards and forwards about this. Um, so yeah, what's the work? What, what, is you, what, is, what have you done and that's enabled you to, to get to this place? And what's the work that you now see that people need to do? <clears throat> well, again, that's usually subjective, but I will, I do have, you know, as a sort of research psychologist i do have a you know pretty strong psychological view on the human condition that we you know we all have lived experiences that strongly shape who we are and how we interact with the world and you know i you know i still think that there's a lot of value to sort of un psychodynamic understandings that an attachment theory is hugely influential uh, for the right week for understandable reasons that our childhood experiences and bonds are formative in terms of how we um, form and carry out uh, relationships throughout our lives um, and that we're relational beings that our social connections are fundamental to who we are and all the evidence shows that you know it's, it's very hard to be a happy healthy functioning person without um, a decent degree of kind of social uh, social relationships in our lives um, but but yeah the, the work for me I think was um, you know a, a kind of fairly long process of so I kind of did regular psychotherapy psychotherapy for about six years and you know my parents separated when I was two um, my mum got legal custody of me they were in a long kind of protracted um, you know difficult period of, of fighting each other you know for who would see me when and you know still to this day i'm not a fan of christmas because it reminds me of yeah. kind of difficult times that you know that was when it would really kick off and oh dear. They'd, they'd fight over you know who i'd spend time with um and so you know there you know there was various consequences as a result of that um i spent a period of time when i was seven um where i went to boarding school and you know, at that time, I think I felt a bit like I was just sent away. Um, so, you know, those are some of the things that, you know, it's not a kind of, I don't want to portray it as a sort of victim narrative, but I think those things did shape and affect me by the time I became a teenager. I had had a lot of stuff that, that I didn't really, wasn't really aware of, but I didn't really know how to deal with. And that ultimately was what made alcohol particularly attractive in the sense that it felt like it offered some release but also a way of being someone that would sort of stand up for myself or say what I wanted to say when I'd sort of internalized or felt unable to do that um for for quite a long time so the work for me was just a period a, a process of um firstly recognizing those the things that had happened and how they kind of affected me and, and then being able to process it and understand how it affected me in my um day-to-day -day life and you know a lot of a lot of those things are positive as well you know i had lots of positive childhood experiences as well and um you know it wasn't all bad but you know just understanding the good and the bad in terms of how that um how that 
functions in my life, including my use of, of alcohol, other things that might make me feel good, either on a short or longer term basis, um, is what the work is for me. And, and then that needs to be balanced as well by looking after myself, by exercising regularly. Habits and, and routines. Exactly. Yep. All the stuff that, that your program helps people with. So the habits and routines touch on that. What's, um, you know, what, what did you discover there? What did you start implementing? What do you do? So for me, it's kind of quite a broad mixture of things that um, might, some of it might come under sort of a mindfulness banner. So I do enjoy yoga. I do enjoy running. Well, I don't enjoy running. I enjoy the feeling of having done a good run. And <laughs> yeah, I probably yeah. enjoy the gym a bit more. I really enjoy golf. Um, again, that's partly the social element of it. And, um, but also just the sort of, you know, the sort of, aspect of trying to get better at it and hitting a good shot is rewarding um so uh you know and then to sort of the broader everyday stuff that everyone enjoys um being outside seeing friends reading learning stuff cooking um those kind of things so yeah i, I kind of prioritize and then sleep's really important as well you know there's a really strong link between history of experience or experience with alcohol use disorder and poor sleep so sleep is something that i absolutely prioritize um anyone who knows me knows me i'm not a morning person and <laughs> come alive at night a bit more yeah <laughs> yeah amazing um and um so we talked about the the those i mean those are sort of the key elements for us uh, the the page play so you know what do we say is is if you want to perform at a high level um, and then you're going to have a high level of stress. Okay. Um, now that 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 stress is countered by doing these things, and these are like permission to play, like yoga, meditation, sleep, exercise. Um, um, is really permission to play at a high level because if you are not doing those things, then you're so likely to have compulsive behavior. Your your system won't work. Um, your 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 central nervous system is going to be constantly spiked. Um, and so that is, uh, you know, people in fight or flight. And when you add in that trauma element, past trauma, um, you talk about it saying, well, you think it will, you know, yeah, okay, I'm, I, I am less balanced than a scientific researcher. I'm quite opinionated. <laughs> um, and um, so I don't have to be so fluffy around the edges as you do. Um, not that I'm saying that you are, that's not the right word. The more what would you describe it as? How do you have to be as a scientist? You have to be um, cautious, cautious, thank you. cautious, yeah. and and um, thank you bets diplomatic, yeah, <laughs> and diplomatic to other research. No, no, because um, I'm a big advocate of the work of Gabor Mate. In fact, we should be getting him on the podcast for this series, um, really looking into epigenetics and and what's happened from an early age and in embryo and and, and during the pregnancy and all of those things. It's really, really fascinating. Um, and I think that that is, by going down the psychotherapy route and starting to talk about these things and learn, some of it we're conscious of, some of it we aren't, um, but it all adds into the work. Um, something else we talked about before was impulsivity um, and, the, and the link of impulsivity. Um, is that in, his scale was called the impaired control scale. Is impulsivity a factor in, in, in that? Can't remember if it's a factor in the scale, but it probably is, or some components of it. Um, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, like a really important thing in uh, recovery or kind of recovery outcomes is self-efficacy. So we know that the belief in your ability to perform a behaviour is highly influential on how successful you'll be in doing that. So mm -hmm. we know that people are struggling with alcohol problems have very low self-belief in their ability to control their drinking whereas people who are you know succeeding at recovery um you know the what we've seen is a huge rise in self-efficacy um so self-efficacy tends to come from successfully performing the action and um so yeah like learning finding ways to manage um things that like might be results of impulsivity so giving in to kind of cravings or triggers you know and that's you know a large part why cbt-based approaches are effective because they help us to identify um 
uh, thoughts that might lead to some often an impulsive response um, mediated by a sort of feeling of anxiety or whatever and put in place those kind of protective behavioral strategies so so yeah like high impulsivity is a trait that's associated with addiction but it's very hard to kind of tease out the exact role and to cause an effect and so on so um and yeah and then the danger of sort of believing oh i'm an impulsive person or i have an addictive personality those things can become self-fulfilling whereas actually um you know like people often say i'm just terrible at maths i couldn't ever do it you know i used to believe that until i did um statistics from my phd which i could no longer avoid having avoided it for my whole life but i you know i realized with hindsight that what i actually needed was just to invest some time in taking it on and learning how to do it and um and not being a kind of slave to the belief that i can't do it and i think um yeah things like impulsivity or compulsion or you know weak will or addictive personalities can be quite dangerous ideas because they can be um they can undermine self-efficacy whereas all, all the all research shows that it's building people's confidence particularly by acting out or doing putting these things into practice that, that really uh, determines success and this is why positive psychology is so helpful it's a framework for yeah. that can be <laughs> yeah as the cautious uh, the cautious optimism uh, well we're steeped in positive psychology yes. um, mm -hmm. over here um because it's aspirational it's it's focused on moving forward um and and all of those wonderful things so i think that's that's another tick to tick to that um okay um we're, we're we're coming to the end i want to ask you a couple of questions what do you think is the biggest barrier um to us helping more people change their relationship with alcohol at the moment yeah i still think it's just the the kind of cultural normalization of both kind of alcohol use as uh, just a sort of normal a normal thing and then alcohol problems being this kind of very extreme end of what is actually a very long and broad nuanced spectrum um so yeah well, there's still a lot of really important policy stuff that needs to happen we know minimum pricing uh does does work and it's yep. been huge labeling labeling is important i mean it's probably not hugely influential in terms of individual decision making but i think it's in principle really important to give people informed choices about how many units they're drinking and what kind of calories are in i'm talking about pictures of dead lungs on cigarettes did yeah, that, that okay. work i mean there's i've um yeah i've done some research around this and it's it tends not to work for the people that it's most uh important to work for so uh, you know there's much more research around this in terms of yeah the tobacco you know scary um uh scary pictures but what tends to happen is there's something called um defensive processing or attention avoidance where subconsciously we just divert our attention away from things that make us feel uncomfortable yeah. particularly where self-efficacy is low so if you're mm. a heavily addicted smoker and you believe you can't change your smoking your mind will be really effective at blocking out anything that reminds you how scary smoking is yeah. um so so yeah well, i've done some research around this and we find the same effect that the more of an alcohol problem someone has and the lower their self-efficacy is the more they have used these subconscious processes to look away so i think it's important that we give people accurate information but we can't rely on you know individual messages that like promote health behavior change i mean it's not a coincidence that drinkware is the alcohol industry's main response to how we address the, the problems of alcohol and um the rest of the alcohol or most of the alcohol industry are heavily opposed to pricing advertising and availability curbs because those are the really important ones for the sort of policy levers that will reduce alcohol consumption particularly amongst uh heavy drinkers um but again it's it's it is complicated and it's not a um you know it's, no, there's no magic bullets we need sort of bottom-up and top-down approaches but definitely that sort of changing that cultural normalization of alcohol use has to come from treating it more as a drug that needs to be regulated um yeah. rather than just an ordinary commodity 
Amazing. So what if you could bring all of the stakeholders into the room, and I'm left that deliberately open, every mm. stakeholder into the room, whether that's the individual who needs support, um, the companies involved, the manufacturers, um, the policy, drugs, alcohol, reviewers, licensee holders, everyone. If you could get all of the people into the room and they were waiting on your decision um, or, or what to say next, what action would you take um, to make a, a global difference? What, what, or what steps, what things would you implement? Oh, yeah, that's a big question. I, mean, <laughs> I, would, I would definitely say that I think the evidence is that if we have a you know, a floor price, a minimum unit price, that means, you know, alcohol can't be bought for very cheap money so that people can use it as a heavy intoxicating drug in in the way that it often is, that it's it's it's, it's harder to obtain large amounts of the, the drug component of it for less amounts of money. Um, I definitely think we need to um, really rein in advertising, you know, despite the kind of voluntary code, we know that children recognize alcohol brands, they value them positively. Um, they think it's a normal part of, um, you know, kind of growing up and, and so on. Um, but then, yeah, just my own thing would be much more about just changing the language, you know, outside of Alcoholics Anonymous, we shouldn't use the term alcoholism. It's so embedded within this reductionist binary idea and all the negative stereotypes that people portray onto people, you know, associated with this idea of rock bottom. So, yeah. you know, like alcohol use disorder isn't a perfect term. Um, yeah. Alcohol problems has some problems with it, if you want to dissect it as well. But the more nuanced we can be and the more we can recognize the individual nature and the nuanced nature and the context of it and people's lived experiences, um, then the better we can kind of move away from sort of pathologizing, othering ideas that like alcohol problems are just one group of people who need abstinence and the rest of us are all fine because, yeah, it really is a very broad spectrum as, as we've really discussed. Amazing. Um, okay, well, some good thoughts. Um, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing, James. Um, I would love you to come and have a look um, at um, some of the data and evidence that we're gathering. Ooh. Maybe we can do something together, get something published. Um, I want to prove some of the model. I want to prove some of the things that we're doing. Um, I've talked to you about that before. I'm now stating it out on the podcast. Really? Here. We, yeah. We've worked with yeah. Sterling University in the past. We've published um, things on our program and, and model. Um, and, um, I, you know, we're here to help a lot of people. And we're on the same mission. My answer to that point would be, um, to the same question, would be, I reckon, something along the lines of, you know, we've got to, the big, the behemoths in the room of the alcohol companies, they're lobbying, they're paying against, they're stopping, the, 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 those are the big juggernauts. So if we can steer them in the right direction, I think that alcohol as a drug is a really, really, really shit drug. But I also understand societies need to take the edge off. And I think there's far better drugs out there. And I think we could help the alcohol companies research and develop better substance that's less harmful, um, that can help people just take the edge off. So I reckon I'd be subsidizing R&D into alternative. I'd be trying to steer the alcohol companies away, high, massively increasing tax um, and restricting advertising, really force those alcohol companies to come up with the, with the next version. Because there is work going on in there, but it's paying homage a lot. It's like, sorry, Drinkaware, which was like their, you know, come on, it's not really here changing the world's relationship with alcohol. Um, so if we can get them aligned and, and really motivated to do it, then I think that would force some change. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with some of that. I'm, um, yeah, so obviously there are kind of alternative alcohol kind of substitutes that are sort of in development, but... Yeah, I'm not a kind of neuropsychopharmacologist, uh, so <laughs> I can't well. speak too, too much to all of that. But I agree that there has to be other options um, that that help people to be less reliant on alcohol for taking the edge off. And you can really zoom out and say we need to make society more equal and more opportunities and, and kind of all of that stuff. Um and then within the context of, yeah, how we kind of adjust alcohol's position as a drug, yeah, that's there's definitely work to be done. And I think for all drugs, it's a balance of regulation. If you go too far, you know, you have negative effects like we saw with prohibition driving underground markets. So prohibition did work in some ways, but it just obviously had 
negative consequences yeah. as well. So I think it's really hard. There's no perfect balance of regulation for any drug or commodity, but definitely at the moment it's under-regulated in that, in that it's over-available, it's too cheap and it's too widely advertised without kind of curbs on what that have enough curbs on what that advertising can really do so yeah yeah it's a complicated one and yeah i'd agree to a large part what's next for you um so as a kind of academic trying to maintain a kind of research focus um it's it's about putting in grants and trying to bring in money to develop uh kind of more more research programs so yeah i'm really interested in how we can reduce the stigma around alcohol problems primarily via changing that kind of narrative and understanding so that we have more nuanced understanding also how you know changing mindsets and beliefs about alcohol can increase problem recognition and help seeking whether that's through apps or through formal treatment for people with more severe dependence um i have a podcast the alcohol problem podcast where fantastic we touch on um yeah various different issues um so yeah kind of more of that stuff i i obviously love it and enjoy it and hope i can continue to to work in this field good man and so where do people find out more about you mention the podcast one more time and anywhere else go hit it sure so um the alcohol problem podcast is on all all the podcast players um and yeah i'm on twitter as james morris 24 those are probably my most uh outward or public facing kind of points and yeah i'm always happy to debate or answer questions good man keep doing what you're doing and um thank you so much for coming on the podcast thanks so much it's been a really great chat brilliant questions thanks, thanks. thank you